Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 19th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Yes, and welcome back to the Kudzu Vine after a two-week hiatus. Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you back on. Um, this evening, here in about 20 minutes, we're going to have uh, Dr. Todd Belt on for the second time on the show. Um, and actually, this will be the first time he's been with Catherine and Tim because the last time was a special midweek Kudzu Vine where it was just exclusively an interview. So this will be the first time being on the regular live Sunday broadcast for Dr. Belt. Um, but until then, we've got things to talk about, more to talk about than we could possibly all cover. And this story was not – it didn't get announced this past week. It's been over a week this happened, but I really want to talk about it because it could have major implications, but very well may not. But it's still intriguing. Um, Andrew Yang, uh, author, uh, I guess uh, – investor and then he's uh, been a democratic candidate for both president and new york mayor andrew yang has announced that he is forming a third party or wants to look at forming a third party um conceivably this would be a party in the middle of where uh the democrats and republicans both currently are while there may be a lot of space for a party in there I'm not sure that's exactly where Andrew Yang lives. Um, Tim, when you saw this, what was your thought on it? Well, I wondered uh, why even do this. I mean, some people are cynically asking, is it to help sell a book he's got coming out? Interestingly enough, he's got a book that is coming out on the very day of the launch of this new third party of his, which he hasn't said very much about and which he has not, as as far as I know, even given it a name. Um, I'm not sure that the Yang Gang, which was what, you know, his supporters were called, I'm not sure they will translate into a lot of votes, um, Strong third parties in this country, guys, are are driven by one person historically. You think of Ross Perot with the Reform Party, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt with the Bull Moose, George Wallace with the American Independent Party. Once those people were gone, well, their their parties either dwindled down to nothing or, or they were gone. Do either of you really think Andrew Yang is a a charismatic figure on the order of the three people that I just named. I, I don't see where this is going, David. No, I will agree with this. I do think it's a whole lot about 
Andrew Yang, uh, much more so than it is about a political movement. I'll um, I'll say that for sure. Uh, Catherine, your thoughts about Andrew Yang and a possible uh, third-party uh, movement? Well, I guess I'm among those cynical people who think that it has a lot more to do with his, the book coming out and Andrew Yang trying to grab some media attention than it really does with, you know, forming a legitimate third party. Um, I've I've long been a, 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 a in favor of having a third party. I think it would help our country. I think it would create it would it would cut down on the division between Republicans and Democrats because we would all need support from from a, from everyone in order to win. Um, but I don't think that it's realistic for it to happen at a national level. I think it's got to start at the state level um, with you know some states uh, electing to allow it and um, having, you know, active third party representation in certain states and then growing from there. It takes a very long time. I don't think Andrew Yang can just say, I'm starting a third party and think that he's going to have any, you know, electoral success with it. So that's what I think. Yeah. yeah, I think, like I said, it's it's a lot about him, and, and not only maybe promoting the book, but just promoting himself. Um, because I guess he sees, particularly after the um, the mayor's race in New York, which you know he may have been a bad fit from. Because my understanding is he's really not from the main five boroughs. Um, he's not seen as a true New Yorker, and then he had never held elective office, so running for president, and he probably outkicked his coverage but exceeded expectations by getting the notoriety he did. And so now this is still trying to be super, super, super nas- uh, national, big stage by doing this. But if you look at what's the number one issue he is affiliated with, he's affiliated with universal basic income. Now, if we look at our current moment in time where we can't find workers uh, for a lot of jobs, now that's probably a lot more complicated than some people oversimplify it. Um, And it may be something as automation takes over that really has to be looked at closely. At this moment in time, how many people from the middle to political right are going to jump on that bandwagon, Tim? Uh, no, 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 no. I just, I, I, I just, everything about Andrew Yang, I mean, he, he seems like a decent enough fellow, but you mentioned that issue. That's not going to be a winning issue right now. That's the one issue he's known for. And, and number two, no, no, nobody, I don't think, from the right side of the spectrum is going to warm up to him at all. Uh, certainly not mainstream Democrats because he, well, he, <laughs> you haven't seen him earn really any votes from them. So, and he is just, I want to repeat again, he is just not charismatic enough to will a strong third party 
from the ground into existence. I just don't think this is going to go very much of anywhere. It might sell a little popcorn, and that's about it. Well, um, my understanding, Catherine, is typically when any kind of third-party movement happens, even if it's not on the presidential level, someone is not getting served, if you will. And if we looked at our moment and time and politics today, who's not getting served? To me, the group that's not getting served are those people that they're to the middle, to the right, that are just not accepting of the Democratic Party and not going to become Democrats, but yet they reject Trumpism and what that uh, brand of Republican politics is. So if somebody was going to start a third party, it would be somebody saying, I'm going to put together a more traditional Republican party that um, is just not what Trump is. Let's just, just be honest about that. That's where the biggest pool of voters not getting their needs met, I would think. Let me guess, Catherine, Andrew Yang doesn't fill that void at all, does he? <laughs> well, you know, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I, I get that, you know, the thing that we associate him most with is the universal income. But I think there's more to him than that, but we just don't know what it is. And that's why this sort of vamp about, about starting this party is really annoying because he announced, oh, I'm starting a third party. I'm not telling you the name of it. I'm not giving you any details. You have to wait. Well, why did you why bother mentioning it until you have some details to give us? Because maybe maybe he is going to try to appeal to that to those uh, people who feel like their needs aren't being met. Maybe I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what. Aside from the universal income issue, I don't know what else he is uh, would be promoting. So I think I just think this is all about Andrew Yang and, um, like you said, trying to. I think you know he felt like he got some attention while he was president, so he tried running for mayor, and that didn't work out. So now he's got to, you know, figure out another way to to grab some national attention. But I think the attention that he got during the presidential race was a fluke. And and I don't think it it indicates that people are interested in what he has to say. It was just he was a you know sort of um, novelty candidate. Well, I, I think he was likable. I, I think I think he ran not on um, <laughs> you know anger towards anybody else, and he and he so he he could be kind of the happy warrior. And he ran on, you know, having ideas, and universal basic income was, you know, a new um, kind of thought for American voters. Um, so he did give that issue some attention, and so therefore, that's where I think he got his um, kind of attention from. But let's talk, you know, hard cold politics. This movement were to happen, it were to get off the ground to a point, you know, somewhere in the high single digits, let's say. It, you know, it gets off the ground, and, and he makes the, on the ballot in 45 of 50 states, kind of at the level Ross Perot made it on the ballot. Or he may have made it on 50. Tim, you'll know. I never know. Um, so he gets that much traction. Who would it hurt, do you think, Tim? 
Well, any votes he would get, I would think, would probably hurt uh, the Democratic candidate. I could, those people that you were talking about that are not being served, they many, many, almost all of them are still rock rib Republican voters, uh, solid conservative voters. They're going to vote for Republicans up and down the ballot, except they're not going to support Donald Trump. And they're just not going to give their vote to a guy like Andrew Yang. They, they, they might organize some sort of write-in or something that would hurt the Republican side. But I just don't see Andrew Yang being able to do this. I don't see him having a natural base that he can go to and get the kinds of percentages that you're talking about. I bet the average person on the street uh, may not even be aware that he's doing this. I, I think this is one of those stories that mainly the political people are talking about. And I just don't see kind of any big splashy issue-oriented thing or anything this man can do unless he is totally, totally out of character uh, with what we've seen before. Uh, if what you said happened, happened, surely it would hurt the Democrats most, but I just can't for the life of me seeing it happen at all. I can't. Yeah, not, I think they're 100 percent right. It, it, it cuts into the Democrats, and therefore, I mean, he's almost like it's a bit of a grievance uh, because he did so poorly, in particular in that mayoral campaign. I think that's the one that, that hurt his feelings a lot more than the presidential um, race. And when he did so poorly, and I guess what did he end up finishing like fourth, um, or, or mm -hmm. oh, lower than that, I think. Another, yeah, it was it was it was a poor showing. I mean, at one point he may have led the polls, and he tanked. And I, like I said, I think it's, I think he may, maybe if he is around, it could be grievance and 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 ha having his feelings hurt. But I don't think it'll go anywhere, um, which is to me good news because it's not for the right reasons, and it's not serving constituency other than his ego. Um, well, let's let's quickly um, try to transition and get another topic in. And um, this past week in the 14th congressional district which we've covered um, quite extensively for a while now, um, there's another candidate that is running in the Republican primary, um, Jennifer Strahan, a health care executive out of Paulding County, um, announced for the campaign. Um, she's got a website up, got an announcement video. looks like it's a credible rollout to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Catherine, I don't know if you've seen the website, the video, seen about her bio, um, what are your thoughts on her candidacy in the Republican primary? I saw her website and I read, I guess I read her announcement. I didn't see the video. I didn't need to see a video. Um, as, I mean, I think it's good that for the Republicans to have a candidate that has some substance to them. And she talks a good game, but she doesn't talk at all about, what she's in favor of she just says she's you know the usual republican um you know chatter that you know she's gonna protect you know american values and she's you know her, her main point seems to be that 
someone who's on committees and, you know, brings things home to the district, unlike our current representative, the current representative. But, you know, aside from that, she doesn't say anything about her. I mean, her experience is, you know, she's a corporate healthcare executive. What? I don't know that that's anything special for being a congressperson. So I'm not I'm not impressed with her, but I think it's good for the Republicans to have someone who's got some substance to that to them to be running. Yeah. Well, I'll say this: I think if someone was genuinely interesting in getting health care costs down and expanding health care coverage to people, a health care uh, administrator could be a wonderful person to have in Congress. Although, based on what she said, I don't know that that's what she's interested in because she talked about supporting the Trump-Pence agenda. It was interesting she mentioned Mike Pence, but she said she'd support the Trump agenda. So it's like, well, if that's what you want to do, then what do we need you for? we got Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Here's the thing is you've got people that she talks about want to be on committees. A lot of those folks, man, if you're on Tucker Carlson and – Newsmax and um, OAN all the time, and, and you're owning the libs, a lot of that base, that's probably what they want. They don't really care about some boring committee on C-SPAN. They're never going to watch. Um, you know, they, they want you saying uh, you know, what they think is clever things on Twitter. Um, so, therefore, I, I just don't know, you know what her angle is. Uh, one thing I will say that I found interesting, and I did watch her rollout video, and then she – you know, she's a healthcare executive. She really didn't talk about the fact she has a master's from Dartmouth. She has a doctorate in healthcare administration. A really impressive resume. Um, she doesn't play that up, which I thought find telling and interesting. But then um, she uh, doesn't, you know, talk about healthcare as far as not the traditional. Um, we want to expand healthcare or bring it, make it more affordable or whatever it might be that you would normally think about. She doesn't talk about COVID policy. And you got to think how many healthcare administrators around the country are having to look at mandating the vaccine. So many hospitals have done it for their workers, rightfully so. And I bet she's working with hospitals because I get the idea she's more of a consultant. She's not running necessarily one hospital from what I gather. I'm not in the healthcare industry, but that's what I gather, that she works with multiple ones. They're probably all mandating the vaccine, or a lot of them, at their facilities. We know where that stands in Republican politics. When she gets pressed on that, and you work with this hospital, and they um, mandated the vaccine, and you work with this doctor's group, and they mandated the vaccine, what is the Republican base going to do with her um, in a race, a debate, whatever, with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, I don't know what she does as a healthcare consultant, but I don't think it's um, necessarily true that someone who is a healthcare administrative administration consultant has anything to do with expanding healthcare or dealing with COVID. A lot of those consultants are really number crunchers and. Um, looking at how to how to make more money uh and well, how to you, you know, may be right streamline about processes a lot i mean i don't i don't think uh 
dealing with patients and um, actual service delivery is uh, even probably 50% of what consultants do. So, But I I'm going to tell you, if she all, worked – yeah, but if she worked with these facilities and they did mandate the vaccine, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her supporters are going to use it against her. They will. They just will. It doesn't matter if, if Marjorie was at the CrossFit gym and that's all she ever did. They don't care that she was actually working. They're going to use it against her, and it's going to make her campaign even all the more quixotic than it starts. Well, I would like to okay. welcome into the Kudzu Vine for the second time and the first time to the live show from George Washington University, Dr. Todd Belt. Welcome, Dr. Belt. Thanks. Great to be with you again, David. Yes. Um, well, I tell you what, since the last time I, I talked with you this summer, um, I've had the chance to go out and see your campus at USC. And I know uh, we talked about your bio <laughs> last time, but, but Catherine and Tim weren't with us. This gentleman got his undergraduate education. I guess your doctorate, uh, a lot of your work came from USC out in Southern California. Then you worked out in um, Hawaii, and now you've built your career so much up that you go into one of the leading universities for political science, uh, George Washington. What a charmed career. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, been a, it's been a great ride, and it's, there's no better place uh, than D.C. to be uh, for somebody who has national politics like me. Yes. Well, I just kind of did that little bio lead-in, just, just telling how varied it's been. Well, the last time you were on, we had this great discussion about Hawaii politics, uh, but we had had a question. I think we um, it cut off on the time frame before we really got into mm. it as well as we like to. So I want to pick up there. And this question was, you know, Barack Obama, born and raised in Hawaii, um, if he would have stayed in Hawaii and built a political career, and, and for this um, exercise, you know, Michelle could have come out on a Hawaiian vacation and they could have met, so you can add her to the <laughs> equation or you can go in a different route in this, um, you know, alternative history. But what would have a political career for Barack Obama in Hawaii look like? Well, I think what we really need to do is is set the uh, sort of the social differences uh, because I think they're very important uh, when we're talking about the difference between a place like Chicago and the politics practiced in Chicago and a place like Hawaii and the politics practiced there, as well as, as the social mores of, of how you really advance your career. And in Hawaii, it's very uh, – it's considered uh, inappropriate to really move too fast and out of your place. And, you know, well, who's there to really restrict that? Well, there, there are certain power structures. <laughs> and uh, one of those power structures is the sort of the political machinery built up around uh, former Senator Dan Inouye. And, uh, you know, he sort of, was sort of a kingmaker for a lot of up-and-coming politicians. And the idea in Hawaii is that you sort of have to – do your time, know your place, and when it's your time, you know, you, you can make the move, but you don't uh, – you, you respect your elders, your kupuna, as they call them, and you don't, uh, you don't act out of place. And we saw in 2006, Congressman Ed Case ran against sitting U.S. Senator Daniel Akaka, 
and he probably couldn't have picked a worse fight for a couple of reasons. First was he looked like he was going out of out of his way to to pick a fight with an elder, and the idea was that well, Dan Inouye and, and Daniel Akaka had been in the Senate for a long time, and they had a lot of um, Senate, uh, you know, they had a lot of good committees and such, and so. Uh, Poor Ed Case really got shellacked in that election, and, and that's because he wasn't really seen as respecting his elders and, wait, and waiting his time. Like he was making the argument about you know, transitioning to a new generation and everything like that, but that just didn't fly. And we know when Barack Obama left the state Senate in Illinois and ran for the first congressional district against Bobby Rush in 2000, uh, he lost pretty handily in the Democratic primary there, too. And he thought Bobby Rush was pretty weakened because he had run for, uh, for mayor against, uh, against Daley in 1999. Uh, but one of the things Obama didn't really realize is, you know, there was a power structure there, too. And uh, after his loss in 2000, uh, Barack Obama really decided, you know, he needed to, you know, ingratiate himself more with the power structure on the south side of Chicago, uh, which for democratic politics uh, is, you know, the, the clergy down there are our big part of their, uh, you know, how, how one, you know, communicates with constituents and how one gets endorsements. So Barack Obama did learn that and was able to obviously come back and regain his state Senate seat and then, of course, be elected to U.S. Senate and finally uh, president. Uh, so, the, the question is, can you make that sort of jump in Hawaii <laughs> that you can in, in Chicago? And I think it's a lot harder. I mean, if we look at Ed Case, he's worked his way back to, to the House. Uh, and so he really sort of stepped out of line with the power structure. And I'm not sure if Barack Obama would have done the same. He did sort of step out of line in Chicago, but the understanding of, of waiting and biding your time, I don't think was so omnipresent in Chicago. So it's, it is difficult to say, but uh, one of the things I would say is it probably would have taken him a lot longer and uh, he might not have had that real moment that worked for him when, you know, he promised hope and change to an America that had, you know, years of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and then eight years of the Bush administration. So, he might not have been able to, to come up so quickly. Yes, and, and it's all what if and conjecture because we just don't know. But sometimes that's <laughs> yeah. such a fun exercise. And, and um, I don't know if you remember the movie The American President with Michael Douglas and Martin Sheen. And, you know, they play in mm-hmm. pool and uh, Martin or, or, uh, Michael Douglas said, well, you know, what if my wife had been alive? When we still would have won and Martin Sheen says, I don't know, but that would have been a fun race to run. I bet Barack Obama's mm-hmm. grandparents would have said to your scenario, I don't know if we had won and gotten all these offices, but I would have liked to have run that race because they would have more time with him, um, you know, there in Hawaii. Well, um, sure. I was mm-hmm. going to tell you something else before I move on to uh, Catherine and Tim, and that was I had recently read about, you know, different states becoming states and gaining statehood, and pretty much throughout our mm-hmm. history – it's always been balancing the scales. And, sure. um, you know, it was slave states and free states. And then when Hawaii and Alaska 
One was Republican, mm-hmm. one was Democratic. I was surprised to yeah. learn <laughs> that um, Eisenhower knew that Hawaii was a very Republican state, and yep. um, mm-hmm. uh, Alaska was Democratic, and that was one reason it became a state at that time. Um, how did that transition mm-hmm. happen so rapidly, seemingly, from Hawaii becoming such a Republican state that that's why it got brought in to now becoming one mm-hmm. of the most staunch Democratic states in the country? Right, and um, the uh, Hawaii has had on occasion a, uh, a member of Congress who has been Republican. But uh, one of the things about Hawaii is, you know, it has always been a majority-minority state. Right, and so when we saw, uh, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy, and and we saw the Southern states realign uh, from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Uh, oftentimes on the issue of, of, of racial politics, then you saw a commensurate uh, movement in Hawaii uh, to to the uh, Democratic Party, which, you know, is, is it's interesting because, of course, you know, the military is a big part of, of Hawaii, and there's a lot of um, veterans, there's a lot of, you know, service members and former service members in, in Hawaii, and, and disproportionately they tend to vote Republican, but... Uh, I, I think it largely has to do with just the general sorting into the parties that happened from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, where, where people really found their home and became more, well, as we see the, uh, you know, the correlations between policy positions and ideology and the parties really start to strengthen as you sort of lose those Southern Democrats and, and white came over on the other side. I think that's the best explanation for it. Yes. Well, I know you're not here to just talk um, Hawaiian politics, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine and then Tim for the next two topics. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on again. We appreciate it, and I'm glad we could be here with you this time, so that's good. Um, I gather from your bio that you're um, interested in presidential and political humor, and Mm -hmm. I've noticed that, I mean, I think we – had sort of a heyday during the Trump administration with, you know, Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live and and just mm-hmm. a, a lot of, I mean, I think it was sort of a expression of all of our, some of our, about half of our frustration mm-hmm. was uh, alleviated by humor. But I don't right. notice as much with, with um President Biden, and maybe it's just that I'm not noticing it, or maybe we're also distracted by the pandemic and everything else that's been going on that we don't have a chance to really relax and and find the humor in the Biden presidency. But am I correct in making that that um, observation, or am I just missing something? Because no, I, it I seems most, like Biden oh, would be a good a good foil for some humor, but I don't, I don't see it so much. Right. Um, Catherine, I think, I think you're exactly right that, you know, the, uh, the big part of Donald Trump and, you know, we, we folk, so much humor was focused on him. There's, there's a couple of explanations for this. And the first you, you led into with the frustration, uh, we know people turn to humor for anxiety reduction, right? And so when, when things are frustrating, when things are, are make us anxious, uh, people need humor and want humor more. And so there's a demand for it. And, of course, you know, the people 
who make humor, <laughs> you know, who, who are, are trained in doing so, of course, are going to be doing that as well because they live in this world and, and act upon it just as the rest of us do. And many of them are, you know, very attuned to politics. So I think that that's a big part of it. And I think another real big part of it is, look, some people just make themselves into easy targets. Uh, and, you know, if, if you, because, because of what they say, because of, you know, uh, I, I, I hate to say this, but sometimes because of how they look and how they carry themselves, you know, and if we think of Sarah Palin, right. And, you know, the whole, she never actually said, I can see, I can see Russia from my house. Right. But that, that line becomes, became stuck to her because of, you know, what, you know, the way that she had presented herself on the national stage to people. And she, she really did make herself into an easy target. And we saw a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, targeting of that. Uh, we did see uh, quite a bit of um, targeting of Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live uh, during the election campaign in 2020. And yeah. um, th- they actually had a, a number of different actors doing their rendition of um, of Joe Biden. I think Woody Harrelson actually did the best one uh, when, when he was doing Biden at one of the at one of the debates. Uh, but you know, again, you know, to be able to uh, create humor, you have to have something. You have to have some material to work with, right? And if someone is so, you know, uh, prepackaged and 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 regular and conformist, well, you can kind of make fun of that. I mean, they did with Barack Obama too, making him seem very staid and and you know almost robotic. But again, that doesn't. You know, some some people are just easier to poke fun at, and uh, some people make themselves easy targets. Yeah, um, I, I just keep thinking back. I mean, I'm old, so I've seen quite a few presidents, and I think we made mm-hmm. quite a bit of fun of Jimmy Carter, for example, as sort of a mm-hmm. hazy kind of, you know, good old guy from Georgia. And then, of course, Gerald Ford was, Right. Really, I mean, he like he absolutely um, set himself up for for a great deal of humor, and he was a good sport about mm-hmm. it too. So it mm-hmm. made it even easier. I mean, they did that whole, um, you know, they used to do that whole tour uh, with Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, just mm-hmm. almost about humor in the White House, and then um, Bush, you know, whatever. That was he was, I mean there was there was humor there, but it was sort of sad, in a way I I found. Um, but uh, I, I just it just feels like there's not as much around Biden. But I'm I'm maybe as we move out of this sort of, uh, uh, you know the pandemic and all the other things that are going on, maybe we'll see some humor out of him eventually. But I, I, I think I, that's I think right. I, I think it's really interesting um, how it how it changes through history, really. Yeah, I, well, I, I think you're right. You know, and a lot of times what we make fun of are people's foibles, and you know, if you know what what foibles does you know does Biden have? You know, he misspeaks sometimes. You know, he's got he wears the sunglasses. <laughs> you know, and so there's yeah, that that, that, to, that whole I mean, sunglasses and yeah. sports car thing is pretty funny. Right. The, the the onion had a real good run at that uh, when he was vice president. So that, that was pretty interesting. But yeah, you bring up Gerald Ford and the whole Chevy Chase, you know, spoofing, you know, always tripping, 
and, and doing the Gerald Ford, you know, it was that one time Gerald Ford fell down and, you know, the guy was, you know, an all American center at the university of Michigan, you know, one, one, you know, arguably one of our, our most athletic presidents we've ever had. And for that to get stuck to him because of, you know, a bit done on Saturday night live, you know, tells you a little bit about the power of, of humor and the sticking power that it has once, uh, once somebody gets, gets tied that way. And the other thing is, you know, Lorne Michaels of, uh, of the, of Saturday night live, the, the creator and producer of it, he always says, you know, that, you know, the satire is a heightened reality. So you have to have something to work with and then take it beyond where it is. And so that's, that's like, like I'm talking about, you know, you need some raw material. Like usually it's a foible. Usually it's something, uh, some, characteristic uh, mannerism or something like that. And of course, Donald Trump had those in spades. <laughs> so oh yeah, he absolutely it, did. Well, this, really, is, this is just a yeah. really quick story, but um, I, I actually met Gerald Ford once just very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a, I worked at university of Michigan and he was there uh-huh. in the building where I worked to do a, um, a, a lecture and I was mm-hmm. walking down a very short stairway, like a middle of the hall stairway, and he was mm-hmm. coming up the stairs. It was like four stairs, flanked by two Secret Service guards. And as I was walking down the stairs and he was walking up the stairs, I said, good morning, Mr. President. And then I said, oh, and I'm not usually this quick on my feet. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't talk to you while we're up going up the stairs. And he just busted out laughing and, and they walked mm-hmm. up the stairs and then turned the corner to go up another flight. And I could hear him and the two secret service agents just laughing all the way mm-hmm. up the stairs. And that, mm-hmm. that was completely because of Saturday night live. Like I never right. thought to say that except that, um, except that I'd seen all those. Um, I mean, I probably never even saw the original thing where he tripped, but he right. was such a good sport about it. I mean, he really like was really busting a gut about it. He thought it was hilarious. Yeah. So that's my and that's my I, little I don't, I don't know if you know, story. I don't know if you know this, but he wrote a book on humor in the presidency as well. Gerald Ford did. Yeah, and they he, so, is, he they know, used to tour about it, mm-hmm. and that may have yeah. been what he was there for. For all I know, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But anyway, right. I, I think I think it's all very interesting, and I th- I do think it. Um, when we when we have that humor around the president, especially, it sort of personalizes them and humanizes them in a way that, um, I mean, I think it's good. Some people probably think that it's, you know, uh, embarrassing to the office or, you know, somehow uh, mm-hmm. but uh, disrespectful. But I don't think so. I think it gives us a little more texture to the person. And I think that's good to sort of better understand them, even if it's all based on one little foible that isn't really accurate. Right. Anyway, yeah, thank and, you for all that. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, you know, sometimes it might not be correct. It could be a foible, but, you know, self-deprecating humor does help to humanize politicians and you know that's one of the times one of the reasons why we hear so many people say start your speech with a joke right because you know it's endearing and you know it reduces you know animosity it's hard to 
it's hard to dislike somebody who's funny. It's also hard to dislike somebody who makes themselves the butt of their own joke, right? And so, right. so those things are, are also pretty important to understanding how humor works. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it to Tim for some more questions. Sure. Good evening, Dr. Bell. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, I would like to turn my attention here uh, to the, I suppose, the elephant in the room of foreign affairs in Asia. Mm. That, of course, Mm -hmm. would be China. And what I'd like to ask you some stuff about is not how we view China. We we already know how we view China, but how they view us. Um, Mm -hmm. Like Donald Trump, when COVID surfaced, switched from professing great friendship for President Xi to open hostility and basically blaming China for many of America's woes that were happening last year, mm-hmm. how did Chinese media in particular react to Donald Trump doing this? Well, that's, that's a really interesting question, Tim, and thank, thanks for having me on, and, and I'll talk about this to, to the extent that uh, I am not a expert on Chinese media. I do not speak Mandarin, uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I have had quite uh, – I've had an experience of having been a um, contributor to, to a Chinese news show, and I, and I, I, am, I do not do it anymore, but uh, for about a year and a half to two years, I was doing that. And it did give me some insight based upon the questions I got and some of the people who were on the panels with me. Uh, I also do some other international uh, news, and every once in a while there is someone from China who's sort of representing kind of the state line, I guess you would say, in terms of, of – uh, their contributions to the discussion, and you know what what really um, what really strikes me is that China is very very concerned with being perceived as being on an equal stage with the United States. Uh, the Chinese mm-hmm. really believe that there is they are a rising power and they should be treated as equals to the United States, which is a declining power, and that that anything that makes them seem like they are second rate or anything that slights them uh, in terms of their relationship vis-a-vis the United States is really, they really don't like that at at all because they Mm -hmm. they think that they should be, they should be absolute equals at the table uh, with the United States Mm -hmm. when it comes to negotiation. And, and of course, you know, there is a a great deal of, um, you know, uh, protocol <laughs> that goes along with Chinese politics. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly our former president, <laughs> Trump, is not big on protocol and is a, uh, a, a serial violator of, of norms of even the protocols in our own country, let alone those internationally. And so yeah. by, the, by the way that he has he treated them reflects, uh, because, you know, it is, it is still always the communist party, you know, the central party uh, that represents mm-hmm. all of China. So if you insult one person in that uh, leadership, you're insulting the entire country as well. And so I think that's mm-hmm. really important to understand and in terms of how some of the reactions may, uh, may seem like overreactions to us. Uh, or, mm-hmm. But uh, if you understand it from, you know, this, this sort of, you know, 
position that they really want to be uh, given the respect that they believe they've earned and deserve with, with the Belt and Road Initiative, with their strong economy, with their double-digit um, you know, growth, uh, and supplying the rest of the world with you know, most of its manufacturers. Uh, it, it's, um, you know, the, the issue of the pandemic and, and how it was dealt with, uh, it is a very sore subject, and it opens up, them up to criticism that they just don't like because it affects that positioning. Mm-hmm. What about the use of propaganda in Chinese state media? Do they believe in employing propaganda as a tool liberally mm-hmm. in dealing with um, media and governments from other countries? Right. That's that's a really good question. Uh, again, not a speaker of Mandarin and not someone who was in China understanding what is being broadcast to the Chinese public. I, I am not an expert on that, but I was on a Chinese state uh, television uh, that was broadcast out of China, right? And so it's sort of reflecting their their views. And so I, I can answer the question of, you know, propaganda in that um, for for me, I mean, I was always treated very graciously. No one ever censored me. And mm-hmm. I thought that by being on this state, you know, run Chinese, you know, it's, it's going out and it's explaining, you know, a Chinese perspective to the rest of the world. But I felt like I could also, you know, in international politics, you have this idea of soft power, right, where you mm-hmm. try to make your, your system, uh, you know, uh, something that the rest of the world wants, right? Either through through the desirability of your system, and I thought that a lot of what was going on in this channel, I could do some deprogramming, <laughs> you know, in terms of you know talking and helping people understand the United States system. That it's still a great system. It has you know its messy parts. Any democracy certainly does, but I felt like by um, by explaining that and demystifying it for people who are tuning into this, I, I could help people understand that, you know, there's another side of the story that you're not getting on this channel. And, and frankly, I, like I said, I was never censored or anything like that. But then I did find out uh, there was some investigation going on that the channel was using uh, forced confessions of Uyghurs uh, in some of their broadcasts. And when I found that out, I, I cut my ties with the, uh, with with the um, television station immediately, and I decided not to. So, because to me that is, you know, not only is that propaganda, but the, I, I find that, you know, a, a violation of human rights, and I don't, I don't want to be associated with that. Mm-hmm. Many in this country, in particular, have gone so far as to suggest that Chinese state media actually poses a threat. To us, is, mm-hmm. is that just idle talk on the part of some in our country, or is there any grain of truth as you see to that? Well, I, I, you know, I think that if we're going to live in a free country, we still have to respect the fact that you know the answer to bad speech is more speech, right? As you uh-huh. know, the, the Supreme, Supreme Court justices had said, and so I'm not. I don't think offensive speech is bad speech, and I don't go around looking to ban speech. I think that ideas, when you bring them into the public 
you know, they can be debated and they can be exposed as being bad ideas. And so uh, I, am, I am very resistant to say that, you know, any messages coming from a, another country are necessarily, you know, uh, harmful uh, to the United States. However, <laughs> I, I will say that you know, <laughs> know that other nations have, uh, you know, manipulated social media, right, and and mm-hmm. in, engaged in in what's called sock puppeting, where they where they uh, intentionally pretend to be people in the United States who are saying things about different parties, and they're trying to, frankly, divide and conquer when it comes to our elections. It is electoral interference, and that. I think obviously is, is beyond the pale when, when people get involved in directly trying to influence our, uh, our elections, I think that that is, you know, exceptionally dangerous. And, uh, you know, if they're trying to hack into our computers or anything, obviously that's it. That's, that's an act of war as far as I'm concerned, but, but, uh, you know, the war, the war, war grounds are much different today than they have been. But when it comes just to ideas and when it comes just to, um, you know, voice, I, I think we need to be a little bit tougher, and I, I think we need to interrogate ideas, and I think we we then you know explore and express and 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 find that you know our system you know with all of its faults has you know the greatest protections of liberties uh, that that we've ever seen in any country. Well said, Doctor, and I thank you for that. And I'm going to send it back to David. David. All right. Thank you. Well. Dr. Bell, what range? We have had humor and politics, something as serious and profound as U.S.-Chinese relations, and then even Hawaiian conjecture, um, as much range <laughs> as we've ever had from a guest. Um, before we let you leave our listeners, um, if they want to read um, some of your work, be it just something on social media or something in one of the trade publications for um, or research publications for political science or if you have books out there, um, just share with anything you'd like to with our listeners. Okay. Um, I have uh, two bu- The easiest probably to find are uh, two books that I've done on the presidency, one on the presidency and domestic policy, which is simply called the presidency and domestic policy, which is co-authored by, with uh, uh, my, uh, uh, the late William Lammers, who is uh, a mentor of mine at USC, and uh, Michael Genovese, uh, who is at Loyola Marymount. And Michael and I also wrote a book on U.S. foreign policy called The Post-Heroic Presidency, which evaluates uh, sort of uh, the um, decline of U.S. power since Vietnam and how presidents have had to deal with that. And, uh, you know, I think that's particularly relevant with what's going on in Afghanistan right now and, the, you know, the reorganization of our force structure. So uh, in terms of uh, social media, I have a couple of different articles. If anybody just wants to Google me at uh, GW, uh, you, can, you can find those on, on my website there and for full citations. Yes, well, so engaging to have you on again tonight. Um, we'll just keep... Uh, tabs on your work and if Hawaii or something funny happens, you never know, um, or other <laughs> politics, uh, we'll get you on the show here, here in the future. Great. Love to talk with you again. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, sir. That was Thank you. Dr. Todd Belt of George Washington University. So good to have him on um, because of his experiences throughout uh, the country from D.C. to Hawaii. I mean, that is, is quite geographically uh, diverse. Well, let's, we've got time for one more topic. And speaking of humor and politics, um, 
Tim James uh, launched his campaign, and I would not just say his name because it becomes funny, uh, but when he announced his uh, three-prong plan, um, the first two prongs um, we might not say are still the meatiest issues, and I won't even necessarily mention them, but the third thing that he wants to do if he defeats Kay Ivey for the Republican nomination and then goes on to win the general election, Tim James wants to get yoga out of public schools in Alabama. Um, Catherine, um, how seriously can we take a candidate for governor that thinks in today's time that one of the biggest issues facing Alabama is too much yoga in public schools? It's ridiculous. I, 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 when I first heard this, which was a while ago, uh, about Alabama, I mean, they've had a lot, they have a longstanding ban on yoga in public schools and they just got rid of it. And this is him saying we need to reinstate it. I just, I just think it's, just such a ridiculous thing to waste time on to even think about uh especially when you look at some of the um uh statistics in Alabama around health care and poverty and um access to access to health care and you know i mean it's it's just it's preposterous. I, I I don't get it. I don't even get it. Like I've never under like I never knew there was some reason to be against yoga. Like what what's there to be against? <laughs> well, like, well, Tim, as you as you get out of downward dog, um, one you can you can try to answer Catherine's question, but feel free to also. Weigh in with your thoughts on this uh, anti-yoga campaign. Well, you know, I'm going to answer all of this this way. The apple does not fall far from the tree. (laughs) I mean, here's a guy that just said yoga is part of a beast with three heads, and I immediately think back to the career of Bob James, his father. He was a guy who I believe was an All-American running back at Auburn. He was Mr. Everything, and he ran as a moderate Democrat and served a term as governor of Alabama, Uh, did a pretty good job. Then George Wallace wanted to run one more time. He knew he wouldn't beat him, so he stood down after one term. And he always wanted to be governor again. Well, when he comes back to run again, he is gone, you know, 180 degrees around the political spectrum. And now he's a big right winger. And I mean, he just went off the deep end as governor. And in that term, he uttered the magic words, I am opposed to a lottery being started in the state of Alabama is evil, it's an iron Christian, blah, blah, blah. And even in a state that was trending strongly to the right, he lost re-election to a Democrat, Don Sigelman, the, the last Democratic governor of Alabama. 
and then he was finished. And uh, Badog, if his son here, is not uttering some of the same nonsensical things that his father was uttering in his second term as governor of the state of Alabama. You see, guys, yoga is the evil Eastern religion, blah, 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 blah. It, it, it's a gimmick. Uh, you know, I think it makes him look like an outright fool. I thought he probably thought he might as well try some kind of a gimmick to get noticed, and that's fine. But don't use something that will invite yourself to be an object of ridicule because voters just don't warm up to that sort of thing. And I don't think that's <laughs> not going to exactly help him, is it, David? Yeah, I think he is just totally misunderstood You know what's happened to yoga in the past. I'd say 20 years at least. Um, You know, I was watching Hard Knocks a few weeks ago. The Dallas Cowboys had a yoga instructor leading them in exercises to stretch and get flexibility. That's why, actually, yoga was brought back into um, schools in Alabama because a state representative that had been a football player had injuries, and he was taught yoga to – you know, kind of heal some of those muscle injuries. And then secondly, there's a pro wrestler from here in Georgia, Diamond Dallas Page, that has created like a whole yoga around, um, you know, not, he says, not your mama's yoga. And he's also a blog talk radio host um, as well. And um, he, you know, brings a more um, testosterone-infused version of yoga but like a lot of the pro wrestlers have gotten into this for helping them with injuries. So you think about, you know, he's thinking about, oh, this is what the average Alabama person thinks. Well, the average Alabama person probably knows a lot about, you know, how football players uh, heal from injuries and then pro wrestlers and things like that. He's just miscalculated, and it would not surprise me if the University of Alabama, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Auburn University, and their football programs or other sports programs have had some yoga uh, for trying to avoid injuries. And um, how silly would he look if um, a Nick Saban or a well, coach at Auburn Don't you think just on general principles, he, he looks silly enough. Is this the issue that he <laughs> hopes to ride to victory with KIB sitting there, one of the most popular governors in the country, does he really think that they couldn't wait? Her campaign couldn't wait to make fun of him. Over there. I mean, they they have to be gleeful. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's just ridiculous. I mean, oh boy. Yeah, she she trolled him online um, because here's mm-hmm. the thing. I read just today that for the first time in their state's history, deaths exceeded live births in the year 2020. Mm-hmm. I mean, think mm-hmm. about that. More people died in Alabama than were born, and that's a Sunbelt state to boot. That means you mm-hmm. got that, – that shows a lot of problems. That shows COVID's not being handled correctly, but that's a lot of places. I mean, I'll, I'll be fair. It's not just Alabama. It's a lot of states. And then also, they're not recruiting younger people in that are going to be having children. 
um, are people that live there that are having children moving out. I mean, that shows a, a lack of opportunity. And so, therefore, when you look at that kind of statistic, very quickly, you know, yoga in public schools is not issue <laughs> one through 20, much less one, you know, number three. Um, so I, I don't know how much we'll be discussing Tim James' campaign after today's uh, quixotic um, anti-yoga, uh, but maybe he'll do commercials. I never know. Um, but, yeah, Tim, great to have you back. Uh, Catherine, last word on, on welcoming Tim back or anything else? It's so great to have you back, Tim. We always miss you when you're not here. Thank you, guys. I've missed you, too. Yep, we were definitely playing a player down. But um, excited to get the full team back, and next week we'll have another great show. Until then, there's a cozy line. Good, Good night, night guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. with a strong and united America still. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.